Congratulations. <laughs> okay, all right, thank you, Mark. Thank you for I was testing to see how polite you would be. Normally, when someone says congratulations to us, we say thank you. I know that's hard when a pastor opens a sermon with congratulations and you don't know why he's congratulating you. That's a little awkward. Uh, but, but normally, we thank people when they congratulate us because normally when people are congratulating us, they're congratulating us either because of something good we've achieved or something good that's come into our lives. And it works the other way around, too. We love to congratulate family members and friends when they achieve something or, or, or reach a certain landmark or, or something good comes into their lives. And the reason I started off with an awkward introduction congratulating you when you didn't know why, is because I actually think that idea of congratulating someone for, for something good in their lives, that idea of congratulations is actually kind of baked into the text that we're going to look at this morning. It's actually kind of important for under, understanding one dynamic that's in the text we're going to study today. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew 5, 1. And as you're turning there, I want to give you an update on what's coming in the pulpit in August. I'm taking you to Matthew's Gospel today because of something I learned while I was on sabbatical uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, but next week, we'll get right back into the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, I know it was a number of weeks ago, I thought Greg Scharf did an excellent job preaching Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and so I'm going to pick up right where he left off in verse 11, and we'll continue through Ephesians 2. And I am going to take his constructive criticism to heart. During that sermon, he said I'm, uh, that he, he portrayed me as being so thorough in my expositions that I'm like a man who mows his lawn twice to get the stray blades of grass that survived the first cutting. I am going to take that to heart. And when we move through the rest of Ephesians 2, I'm going to take longer chunks, and I'm also going to strive for simplicity in preaching because concurrent with, Greg, with me listening to Greg's sermon after he had preached it, I listened to it online, uh, concurrent with hearing him say that about me, uh, I also was reading a book over sabbatical called Simplicity in Preaching by J.C. Ryle. And so I am going to aim for simplicity in preaching, preaching a little bit longer sections. Now, when we get into Ephesians 3 in September, I make no promises. Old habits die hard, and I might go back to the way things were earlier, but, but I want to aim for simplicity in preaching. And it isn't in my notes, but it reminds me there's a story about J.C. Ryle. Uh, Ryle was an evangelical pastor uh, in the Anglican church in the 1800s, and he was so effective in his ministry that he was elevated to the position of bishop. I believe he was bishop of Manchester at the end of his ministry. And at one point, a member in his congregation uh, brought her mom to come hear him. Her, her mom, she, she was concerned her mom was not a believer. She didn't attend church, and she wanted her mom to hear Bishop Ryle. And of course, at that time in the Anglican church, uh, the Anglican church did have problems with formalism, ritualism, uh, and the idea of someone being a bishop, they were supposed to show off their Oxford education and big vocabulary words and sound very, um, very profound in the pulpit. And Ryle was totally against that. He was very simple, very straightforward, and very earnest about people's souls. And so the sermon got done, and the daughter asked her mom what her mom thought. And the mom says, they said I'd go to hear a great bishop preach. That man was no bishop. I understood every word he said. 
And when the story got back to J.C. Ryle, he took it as a compliment. That's what he meant to do. And uh, so I'm going to strive for simplicity in preaching as we move through August and get back to Ephesians chapter 2. I also want to take this opportunity to thank the elders and you, uh, the members of the congregation, for giving me a sabbatical. Uh, I was unaware of just how tired and stressed out and high-strung I was Uh, And it was good to just be able to relax, spend some more time with family, and then even work on some long-term ministry projects, but without the tyranny of the urgent breathing down my neck while I worked on them. Uh, In fact, uh, just to let you guys know about this, uh, starting this Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. up in uh, the D.C. area, I'm going to be teaching a seminary class uh, called Pastoral Counseling Uh, to um, seminary students who are part of a master's seminary extension campus up there. And I was able to get my whole syllabus and all my class notes done over sabbatical without, you know, other things tugging at me, and that was excellent. And so I just want to thank you for giving me and giving my family the gift of a sabbatical. Uh, One thing I didn't anticipate, I did visit, we did visit other churches, and it was good to see how other churches uh, do things, but after about the second week, I, I was like, this is dumb. I want to go see my friends on Sunday morning. I missed you guys, and Grace Fellowship Church is home, and it's, it's, good, to be, it's good to be back. Well, let's read our text for today. It's Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along with me while I read them. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, and in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Holy Spirit has given us four inspired accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, and each of them emphasizes a different aspect of who He is. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is King, and He is building an eternal kingdom. And what I just read comes from the beginning of His sermon, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He preached this earlier in His public ministry, and this is an introduction to the values of His kingdom. It's an introduction to the, ver- to the principles and values by which He governs His kingdom and those who are citizens in it. Someday soon, Jesus will return to reign as King over all kings and Lord over every individual, and He will set up a global kingdom. And when He returns, He will reward those who've submitted to His rule, uh, and He will punish those who've rejected His rule. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us important insight into how to live as we await His return. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, 
is a, a group of teachings that have been, become popularly known as the Beatitudes, and they all have the same pattern. They all start with the idea that there's a certain kind of person who's blessed or who, in, according to Jesus, is blessed, and then there's some sort of reward that that person, uh, those kinds of people will receive. There's eight of them in this passage. They all sort of follow the same pattern. And then there's a ninth one that I'm going to call kind of like a bonus one in verses 11 and 12 that's a little bit different, and we're going to try to look at all of them today. Now, when I first came to this church, uh, back in 2014, I preached through all of these Beatitudes when we went through Matthew's gospel. It took me eight sermons. I'm going to try to do it all today in one sermon. So I'm up against it. I'll try to be succinct, but they're all so rich. It's really hard. But uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to be simple and, and get through all of these. I'm up against it today, but I think there's value in trying to look at all of them together as a whole instead of just breaking each one out individually like I did last time I preached through this. And so that's what we're going to do in the passage. And the place to start, I believe, for understanding this passage is to start with the most important word in it. I would argue that the most important word in the passage to understand is the word blessed. It occurs nine times, and it gets to the main idea Jesus is driving at. But there's a big problem uh, with that word, at least for those of us who are English speakers. I don't know if uh, the churches in other cultures that speak other languages have this problem, but here's the problem with it. The Greek word that most of our translator, uh, translations are translating as blessed, it's not the normal Greek word for blessed. Uh, it's a bit hard to bring over the, all of the meaning into English, and contemporary translators uh, even admit this. Commentators admit this. Pastors struggle to preach its exact meaning. Back when I preached this in 2014, I used the word happy. Uh, happy are those who uh, pursue righteousness, for example. But the problem I have with both blessed and happy, it does communicate the main idea that the Greek word is getting at, yes, but the problem I have with it is just think through the Beatitudes for a moment. It doesn't seem to be happy, it's, it doesn't feel like a happy thing to be poor in spirit, right? When, when the system of self-justification and self-righteousness you've built comes crashing down and you see how evil you've been to rebel against the one who made you and loves you and sustains you, when you see how evil you are compared with the rubric of, rubric of God's law, that's a wonderful thing because it prepares you to receive the salvation that you can only receive if you confess your sins, yes, but that's not like a happy feeling, and it's not a happy thing to mourn. And so, even the word happy that I used last time, I didn't quite sit well with… I explained it, but it didn't quite sit well with me. And so, for a number of years now, the words blessed and happy have been like a pebble in my shoe that I can't get out of my shoe. It just bothers me. And so, when we went on sabbatical, I decided, you know what, I want to um, I, I just commune with the Lord by going through some books of the Bible. And one of the books I chose was Matthew. I was going to just read through Matthew devotionally for the good of my own soul. And when we got to chapter 5, I came once again to the splinter in my mind, and I'm like, okay, I'm on sabbatical. I'm not under pressure. I'm going to go see how Greek speakers like Aristotle and Plato use this word. I'm going to listen to how some other pastors have preached this difficult word and see what I could learn. And, and here's what I learned on sabbatical. 
The non-Christian Greeks used this word to extol the good fortune of other people. They used it to describe someone they believed to be in a good position that was better off than most of the rest of us. To put it negatively, they used this word that we're translating blessed uh, to, for people that you would envy. You would envy their position in life. Specifically, you can find them using it uh, to praise parent or extol parents who have excellent children, or mothers who've raised sons who have grown up to be admirable men. Uh, they used it for men who had married excellent brides, for couples who had seemed to fi- have found true love uh, uh, romantically. They used it, uh, the common people used it for the wealthy whose wealth afforded them in a, p- a position in life where they were above some of the troubles and anxieties that the rest of us have to deal with. The philosophers used it of thinkers who had found an inner contentment and satisfaction in the life of the mind, whereby they still had a certain contentment and happiness even in the middle of difficulties and sorrows. According to their usage, we might translate the Beatitudes this way, fortunate are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Well off are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because in the end, they're going to be the ones who are satisfied. Better off are the merciful, because in the final reckoning, they'll receive mercy. I think that gives a better sense of what Jesus is communicating here. And after years of this word being a pebble in my shoe, uh, through another pastor, through listening to the preaching of another pastor, I was finally able to find a better word in English that I, that I think translates this. I think there's a better word in English than blessed or happy or fortunate, well-off, or better-off that translates this idea. And I'm going to open it up now for congregational participation. I think there's one word in the English language that better captures the idea of what Jesus is communicating here. Do you know what it is? Is it, can you say it louder? Uh, I, I, I said it earlier in the sermon. Congratulations, yes! I thought that was going to be so much more effective. <laughs> Some of you right now, you're like, wait a minute. In the middle of the sermon, we got to remember what he said at the start. When did that become a rule? That's not a rule. <clears throat> All right, yeah, congratulations. Yes, yes, congratulations. Now, just think about it this way. Often when someone congratulates us, their, congr- their happiness for us is actually more about our future than our present, right? Congratulations for graduating from high school. Why? Well, because you got high school out of the way. No, that's not what we mean by it. We mean congratulations for getting your high school diploma because now a whole new world of employment and job training and university is open to you that never would have been open to you uh, if you hadn't gotten your high school diploma. Congratulations on the birth of the healthy birth of your your new baby boy or girl because now you're not going to be able to sleep through the night. Uh, No, 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 because children are a blessing in the Lord, right? So often, our congratulations have to do with what this means for a person's future and not so much their present. And that's an important important part, I think, of what Jesus is communicating here. See, uh, it's future-oriented. When it comes to uh, our spiritual lives, it is so important to play the long game. Uh, This moment that you're living in, where you're facing whatever you face, 
It it won't last forever. Uh, This stage of life you're in, it isn't all there is. Jesus is coming back. He's bringing in a kingdom. This life isn't all there is. There is an age to come. And and part of our problem, I think, one of my concerns with uh, us grasping these Beatitudes is that if all you… if if all you think of is in terms of this life, if this life is all there is, and uh, the secularists and the communists and the postmodernists are right, this life is all there is, and when we die, we cease to exist, then a lot of what Jesus says here makes absolutely no sense, because all the rewards He tells us about are future-oriented. They primarily have to do with the life to come and when He sets up His kingdom. And so, you have to take the long view in mind, and I think the word congratulations does that because it's a future-oriented word. The second thing I want you to think about as we go through these Beatitudes is this. Um, When other people congratulate us, it feels good, right? Most of us would accept a congratulations from anybody. It's just nice. But what if Jesus Himself congratulated you? Or what if you overheard Jesus congratulate someone in our congregation? you'd want to pay attention to what he was congratulating them for, right? Like, if he congratulated you on something, you'd take that pretty seriously. You wouldn't forget that. Well, Jesus is offering people congratulations here, and we need to pay close attention to what he uh, congratulates people for. And And here's the reason why. So much of what he congratulates people for, we would want to send them a sympathy card for in these verses, right? His values are totally different, and some people have labeled this section uh, an introduction to Jesus' upside-down kingdom because His kingdom values are so different than our values. But you know what I think a better title is? I think a better title for the Beatitudes would be an introduction to Jesus' right-side-up kingdom because we're the ones who are upside down and need to adjust to what King Jesus is saying, and these Beatitudes help us do that. We're the ones who have often sort of short-sighted, immature, foolish values, and we need to learn from these about what Jesus values and what He rewards. So, let's look again at each of the Beatitudes very quickly. Verse 3, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit. Well, the word Jesus uses here for poor is not the regular Greek word for poor. It's the word tokos. It means to shrink, cower, or cringe. And it was used as a word picture for a beggar who was holding out their hand to receive uh, a handout, but with their other hand or arm was hiding their face because they were so ashamed they didn't want people to recognize them. It was used most often for people who had no means, no way of supporting themselves because they had some kind of physical uh, disability or handicap. Now, the regular Greek word for poor, uh, Jesus uses that, for example, of the widow who went to the temple and gave the two copper coins. Uh, And that idea of poor was for people who are poor, yes, but they have some means of supporting themselves. They have some valuable skill set they can use to at least uh, uh, fend for themselves in some way. But the word Jesus uses here is a word for those who are hopeless and dependent on others 
for financial support. And then the word spirit alerts us to the fact that Jesus isn't talking about financial poverty. He's talking about a kind of spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty before God. Apart from God, we are hopeless and helpless and lost, and we can't get ourselves unlost. Uh, Those who are poor in spirit recognize their spiritual destitution and complete dependence on God. They know they have no saving resources in themselves, and they're going to have to throw themselves on God's mercy, which means if you're poor in spirit, your pride is gone, your sense of spiritual self-assurance is gone, uh, your sense of moral virtue and goodness is gone. Uh, To put it in legal terms, Uh, someone who's poor in spirit is going to plead guilty to all of the charges of God's law against them. Uh, To put it in financial terms, they're going to declare spiritual bankruptcy before God. Uh, To put it in uh, other spiritual terms, we could say it this way. The person who's poor in spirit admits that they don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom of heaven in the first place, right? They have nothing to commend themselves, and they're throwing themselves on God's mercy. Now, Jesus congratulates that because even though that is, uh, uh, it feels to most of us like a nightmare to wake up to, the reason Jesus congratulates us on that is because those people who've become poor in spirit are finally seeing reality for what it is, and they're open to receive the free gift of salvation He offers. Think about it the opposite way. Those who aren't poor in spirit are still delusional about their own moral goodness, and they're still in some way trying to justify themselves or commend themselves to God. Um, They're not being honest about the wickedness of their sin. But the kingdom of heaven is only for those who confess their guilt and confess they don't deserve to be there because they've committed treason against the king. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who are poor in spirit. Next, Jesus says, Congratulations to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, in context, I believe that the mourning Jesus is referring to, He's speaking primarily with mourning over grieving, over our own spiritual poverty, over the state of our own souls, uh, over how sinful we are. Um, But I also think this could apply to a godly person whose heart is broken over how broken the world is. I think that, that could apply. What kind of comfort will there be for these people? Well, again, I think the comfort is primarily future-oriented, but I think there is a present comfort. When we mourn over our sins um, and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, there follows a comfort in knowing that all our sins are forgiven through Christ and we're accepted by God. There comes a peace that can only be found on the other side of pleading guilty to all charges and throwing ourselves on Christ for forgiveness. Uh, And so, it does lead to comfort when we mourn over our sins and confess them for what they are. That's a present comfort, but there's also a future comfort. When we finally meet Jesus face to face and are forever cured of our disease of sin, we will enjoy the comfort of not just knowing that our sins are forgiven, but of finally being freed from sinful desires through the work of God in our lives. And in that day, we will really, truly be comforted uh, in terms of mourning over our own sin. In verse 5, Jesus goes on to say, in essence, better off are the gentle because in the end they'll inherit the earth. 
How should we define gentleness here? Well, again, the, I think the flow of, uh, excuse me, the flow of Jesus' thought helps us understand what this gentleness is, right? So, someone who's poor in spirit admits their spiritual bankruptcy, they grieve over their personal sin, and then because of how, fall, uh, how far uh, they, they fall short, they realize uh, just that they're not great people, and here's what it does. It helps them be more patient, more gentle to other people who struggle, right? It helps them become gentle with others because they're painfully aware of how much mercy they've received so they can, in gentleness, show mercy to others. And it's a beautiful picture. The way that God works in a person's life is when they come to the end of themselves, there's godly sorrow, and that godly sorrow gives birth to being gentle with others. Or another way you could define this gentleness is by looking at the opposite. One Bible scholar defines gentleness this way, those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. Now, if you take those definitions of gentle, then let's stop and be honest for a moment. In the present world system, the gentle don't inherit the earth. In the present system, the gentle don't inherit much of anything, right? Who are the people who inherit the earth now? People who demand their own way, who fight for what they want, and bulldoze over, over other people. That's who inherits the earth. In our world, gentle people don't even inherit what they're due from customer service on the phone right? You know this. You know this from working in institutions. You know this from extended family, if you've ever been around an inheritance fight. Uh, you know this, sadly, perhaps even if you've ever been through a church split. What happens in the middle of those conflicts? The arrogant people are arrogant, the humble people are humble, and the arrogant people get their way. That's what happens in our world. But a new order is coming. King Jesus is going to bring in a new order in which He reigns over all the earth and rules the nations of the earth with a rod of iron. And you already know this. You already suspect this, if you don't know this. Uh, Jesus, one of the glories of God is not just uh, that He's the creator and sustainer of all things and that He reconciles wayward sinners to Himself. One of the glories of God is that He's a delegator, right? I mean, just think about church. Like, this whole sermon would be so much more effective if it was given by an angel, but, but, that, it, it's, but that's not the way God has set this up. He uses, he uses people with feet of clay, uh, uh, He uses broken pots to show His glory. Well, in the kingdom to come, Jesus is going to delegate authority, and you know who He's going to delegate authority to? The gentle. He's not going to delegate authority to people who break others under their authority and destroy relationships and use their positions uh, for self-serving purposes. Those people, Jesus is keeping track. He knows who those people are, and they will not be given positions of authority in His kingdom. Instead, the gentle will inherit the earth when He comes back. Uh, next, Jesus says, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're the ones who are going to be satisfied. Now, as with gentleness, those who truly crave righteousness uh, don't tend to get ahead in this life. But again, a day is coming by, whereby Christ's work in our lives, the people who've hungered and thirsted for righteousness, will stand in the presence of God's glory, blameless with great joy. A day is coming when Jesus will say to those who've hungered and thirsted for righteousness, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And on that day, the fulfillment and joy and satisfaction that those people have 
will be unmatched by anything else any of our cravings tend to lead us toward. You just, just, take, just take our normal uh, cravings, desires, what we normally hunger and thirst for. Most of those things, if you pursue them and you actually get what you desire, they, they don't bring the satisfaction that we're looking for, at least not ultimate satisfaction. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied when King Jesus returns. Uh, in verse 7, Jesus goes on to say, the really fortunate ones are the merciful, because on the great day of accountability, they will receive mercy. Now, you all know that as a pastor, I offer uh, biblical counseling uh, to people in our congregation, and from time to time, I also counsel on a volunteer basis uh, people from our community, and uh, especially with people in the community. If someone comes to me for help, and the specific help they want is overcoming a sin that they've become entrapped in, and, and, and they're confessing it as it's, it's bad and they want out. If, if they're confessing it as sin and they're wanting help out of it, one of the things I try to make sure I tell them in our first session is that by confessing, you've put yourself in a strong position because God gives grace to those who confess, right? What, what, what do we hear multiple times? We hear this from Paul. We hear this from Peter. God opposes the proud and the people who won't admit it and think they have it all together and are full of their own virtue, but He gives grace to the humble and to those who confess. So, I tell them, you, you've put yourself in a strong position. Well, we have the same dynamic happening here. We tend to think that the people who've put themselves in strong positions are the wealthy or the super intelligent or the athletic, the beautiful, the successful. But Jesus is saying, you know who the really fortunate ones are? The really fortunate ones are the ones who are merciful because in the end, they're going to receive mercy. Uh, those who are merciful, those who don't take vengeance, those who are quick to forgive, those who give grace to others they are going to receive mercy. And then next, Jesus says, congratulations to the pure in heart because they shall see God. Now, there's a contrast here with pure in heart we need to see, okay? Um, purity in our outward behavior, in our words and actions, is a very, very important goal for anybody who follows Jesus to aim at, okay? But by using the word heart, Jesus is aiming at something more than, more than just our outward behavior, our outward words and actions. In the Bible, the heart is like the control center, the operating system of a person. The heart uh, in the Bible, the Bible portrays the heart as where our thoughts and motives and imaginations uh, and desires come from. And so, Jesus is saying this, uh, congratulations to those who are pure in the motives and intentions and thoughts and imaginations and desires of their hearts because they're going to be the ones who see God. Now, if that's the case, what it means for each one of us is this, we're in a heap of trouble, right? I mean, who's going to raise their hands to say, all my imaginations and thoughts and motives are pure? I just… None of us have achieved that. And so, this is one of the Beatitudes where I think we need to just stop 
and, and turn to the Lord and say, Lord, you got to help us. I, I'm not pure in heart. I've been trying to be pure in heart, and I'm not making that much progress. You gotta, this is where a prayer like what David prays in Psalm 51, where he says, create in me a clean heart, and you could substitute pure. Create in me a pure heart. Uh, create in me a, a pure, clean spirit. Cleanse my heart. Uh, that is the perfect prayer request for when we come to this beatitude. Uh, we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy and ask for His help growing in being pure at heart. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, well off are the peacemakers because they will be called sons and daughters of God. Again, uh, in this life, people who are peacemakers don't tend to get ahead because usually they're willing to sacrifice something or compromise to do what makes for peace. You, typically, the people who are warriors, who are out for their own agendas, get ahead, and, and who are intelligent and crafty enough to figure out how to get it, they're the ones who get ahead. But Jesus says, those who do what makes for peace and who make peace, they're going to be His true sons and daughters. And then in verse 10, Jesus says something very important, congratulations to those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the problem with this beatitude is this. God has created us as social beings. None of us likes being insulted or rejected. Like, there are family members and friends who've chosen not to follow Jesus, and we sense that if we take a stand for righteousness in a particular conversation, we could lose them, and we don't want to lose them. We don't want to lose family members or friends over it. We don't want to be rejected. Uh, but Jesus says, Congratulations to those people who are willing in the right situations to make a stand for righteousness and lose relationships over it because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you take a step back and you look at the cumulative effect of what Jesus is saying, many of these things are not things we would congratulate someone else for, right? We would want to send a sympathy card to people for some of these beatitudes, but this is what Jesus congratulates. These are the people that put, have put themselves in a strong position for when King Jesus returns. These are the qualities that He values and rewards. And then at the end of uh, the section, verses 11 and 12, He gives what I'm calling sort of a bonus beatitude, and He gives it in a little bit of a different format. See if you can pick up on what's different about this beatitude. Uh, verse 11, highly favored are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Time again for congregational participation. What's different about this one? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, he says you. Yeah, he says you. And yeah, and, and yeah there's actually, there's a num there's, yeah, there's multiple differences you can pick up on if you just compare it with the ones that came before. Here's the main difference I want you to see, okay? The ones that came before were generic in the sense that the beatitude is like a quality that you exhibit. But this one, verse 11, when Jesus says, because of me, that now makes it intensely personal, right? And he said those. Here he's saying you. By using the, you, the word you and then talking about you receiving ill treatment because of your connection to him, Jesus is making this intensely 
personal. Let me illustrate this because I, I don't want us to miss the power of what Jesus is saying. Um, and, and my illustration needs uh, a caveat, an introduction. One of the things that I am so thankful for, uh, you know, I don't deserve to be in God's kingdom, let alone have the privilege of being a pastor. But I'm not just thankful for being a pastor. I'm thankful that I get to be a pastor at Grace Fellowship Church specifically. And one of the things I'm really thankful for at Grace are the elders I get to work with and the fact that for a number of years now, uh, I think uh, the elders and the members of the church, we've all enjoyed a remarkably long season of unity. Uh, We have a very, I think, unified, loving church, and I'm so thankful for that. I don't take that for granted because uh, conflict is just a normal thing with human beings and institutions, even in the church. And I pray regularly for our unity, and I'm so thankful for the unity we have. But imagine for a moment, this is all hypothetical, please don't forget this in the middle of my illustration. Imagine for a moment that I were to stand up here in the pulpit and say, uh, hey guys, this is a sad day, I'm, I'm sorry to have to bring this to your attention, but there's been a conflict brewing behind the scenes, and it's about to break out and go public, and um, some of the members of our church and even a few people in leadership, uh, they want to uh, come after me, they want to get rid of me as pastor, and I just want you to know before the conflict bla- breaks out, I want you to understand ahead of time that your eternal reward in heaven depends on you siding with me. Why are you all laughing? I feel so hurt. No, 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 this is good. I don't feel hurt at all. No, you should be discerning, right? If I were to stand up here and say that, there should be warning flags. Five alarm fire should be going off in your head, like something's happened to our pastor that he said. That would be so arrogant of me to claim that your reward from God in heaven would, would be based on whether you side with me in some conflict. That's horrible. Okay, but Jesus just did that in our passage. He, he just did what, what I did in the illustration. And so the question, what it does is it begs the question, who does Jesus think He is to say that there's this, there's this conflict that He knows is coming between Him and the world, Him and the Pharisees? Who does Jesus think He is to say that whether or not we're willing to side with Him and receive some ill treatment, that based on that, our eternal rewards will be determined from God the Father? And again, I'll open it up for congregational participation who does Jesus think He is to say that? God, yeah. He, Jesus thinks He's king of an eternal kingdom and that He's the center of that kingdom, and He thinks He's God. He thinks He's God's own Son. And so, and, but here's the reason I gave that illustration, and I wanted to make sure we camped out in these verses. It's for the purposes of application, okay? Um, The reason I emphasize this is because Jesus is telling us how His kingdom operates and what it looks like when people treat Him as their king, which means the most important way to respond to King Jesus in this section isn't to pick out the beatitude that you felt most convicted by and then try to work on it. The the place, that might be a good application, okay, but the place to start is to simply ask the question, have I bowed the knee to King Jesus, and am I treating Him like the King, 
right? Christianity is not just some like moral self-improvement project where you pick and choose which teachings you like and try to become a better person. You have to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so, the place I think we should all start with application is asking the question, have I bowed the knee to Jesus as King? Have I confessed Him as Lord publicly? Have I taken the oath of allegiance to Him, the public oath of allegiance to Him that baptism represents? And if you can say that, I know many of you in here can say that. I know many of you, you, you have bowed the knee to King Jesus, but only you've, after you've bowed the knee to King Jesus, then we look at these beatitudes and we look for ways that we can improve by adjusting our values to fit with the values of the King. And I would just say, as we turn towards closing, I do hope that uh, preaching all of these Beatitudes has challenged you, but this is also one of my pastoral hopes. As I look at our congregation, many of you already exhibit uh, many of these Beatitudes, but it can be very discouraging in the present because our reward still hasn't come. And I just want to encourage you if these beatitudes, if they characterize you, but it doesn't feel like you're inheriting the earth and it doesn't feel like a happy thing, you're on the right track. You're going down the right path, but so much of what we hope for and so much of the reward we anticipate, it only comes to us when our King returns. So, don't grow weary in well-doing, right? Uh, if we, if we uh, sow to the right things, we will reap the right reward in God's timing. So, you be patient and keep doing the right thing. What I'm going to do in closing is I'm going to give you a moment of silence where you can do business with God, you can respond to Him in prayer based on what we've learned, and then I'll close us in prayer. Dear Jesus, we bow the knee to You as King, and we thank You so much for teaching us about Your kingdom and your values, and what you reward. I pray for those who've taken a stand for righteousness and who've lost relationships with friends and family for your sake, that you would comfort them and richly reward them. I pray for the peacemakers and the merciful and the gentle who's, who have given up something to forgive, who've absorbed a terrible loss in order to forgive or mend a relationship that you would comfort them and reward them in your timing. I pray for all who are poor in spirit and who mourn over sin and who are sick of themselves and desire to be righteous and hunger for it and thirst for it, that you would forgive and satisfy them. We thank you for coming, for dying, for rising again, and we pray that you would come back quickly, bring in your kingdom and be merciful to us sinners, we pray in your wonderful name. Amen.